Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to On Trial, starring Mark Radlich, also starring John Comer. You're ready, Hollywood, because you're on trial. Order in the court. All rise. Court is now in session. I'll take a Reuben with fries and a vanilla Coke Zero. Seriously, I would kill for one right now. You like I would put a bullet, I would put a bullet in your head. <laughs> uh, uh, introducing the Honorable Judge Fudd, now presiding. Tonight on trial, uh, we are putting the Denzel Washington tour de force American neo noir crime thriller Training Day on trial. Of course, I am your tonight your prosecuting attorney, Mister Mark Rattledge. And that Kool-Aid man who just ran in here yelling, oh, yeah, give me a vanilla Coke, is your defense attorney for tonight's proceedings, Mr. Sean Comer. How do you do, sir? I'm Sean. You're not. And I want to change my order. I just remembered they have great salt and vinegar chips. So, yeah, Reuben <laughs> salt and vinegar chips and a vanilla Coke Zero easy on the ice. You're a you're a modern man in a complicated world. What stopped you from getting a Reuben tonight? Why why didn't you just go get one? Do they not have Reubens in Kansas, Kansas City, Kansas City, where I'm from? <laughs> um, Wichita at the moment, but uh, no, they do. It's just that, as as we talked about occasionally offline, offline and off air, um, no online, off air. I guess you could say I've. I've been losing a lot of weight and I'm down to, I'm down from hovering around 240 pounds to 200, just barely above like the one nineties. So yeah. Um, and my diet mostly lets me eat variations on almost all the foods that I love, but man, I really got to limit myself on eating out. So, I – and also there's just not much substitute for a really good sandwich when you want one. So every now and then, despite how content I keep myself with my, with my dietary options, something just pops into my head. That. I want that right now. I would do evil things I could not tell my mother about for <laughs> a large pepperoni pizza or an order of Taco Bell nachos, or something, or something along those lines. And I've also cut soda out entirely until I lose the last 20 pounds that I want to get yeah. back down to. And I had to do that. I started doing that about four or five days ago. Uh, I can now tell you after, now that I have no diet cherry Dr. Pepper, out in the garage, no vanilla Coke Zero. I can now tell you 
that after a week without that, I no longer fear hell. <laughs> you went through withdrawals. You went through withdrawals. All right, I want to play a game. What you pass? What you pass tensing me for, motherfucker? <laughs> I want to play a game. <laughs> it's time to play the game. Okay. It's all about okay. the game and how you play it. So when I uh, book the calendar out for a, a year's worth of shows, typically, um, every you know the the lead off is always "Damn You Hollywood." That's kind of what I base everything around. And "Damn You Hollywood" informs what I'm going to make Jesse Starcher cover on source material. Um, I've pretty much been the booking agent for that show, and. I pick about half to you know, sometimes a little more than half of the on trials based on forthcoming features we're going to do on damn you Hollywood. So, you know, we usually will do with one of the sequels if they're, you know, or one of the originals, if there's a reboot, that sort of thing. Um, you know, there's a forthcoming Scarface. We're going to do the original, that kind of thing. But I leave dates open uh, for Sean to pick. Now, Sean has free reign to pick any movie in the known universe. So the game I want to play is, Inside the mind of Sean Comer, what possessed you to pick Training Day? Was it just because it was available on Netflix and you threw a fucking dart? What's in the, what goes on in that mind of yours? Well, I respect you, Booker Man, but I want <laughs> to throw one out there that, number one, when I saw it the first time, yeah, this, this hit theaters in... Okay, in 2001, so I would have been, I would have been 19, 20 years old, I think, somewhere along those, along those lines. In fact, uh, let me just check here. Uh, okay, September 2nd, 2001. So, no, I was 18 years old at the time, and not as not as well-read, not quite as worldly as I am now. So I felt like I didn't quite possibly give it as much of its due as I should have when I saw it and appreciated it on a more, on a more mature level for what it was trying to say. And I wanted to give it another chance for me to take it in especially now that a movie like this should really probably be more relevant than it's ever been. And also at the same time, I figured that knowing your love of shows like The Wire, it's a movie that you probably absolutely adored, and I wanted to roll the dice and see if the schedule might line up so that you might have to prosecute it. (laughs) So uh, kind of the, the Venn diagram where those two interests intersect, that was what made me look at the upcoming lineup of Netflix and go, you know, that could be interesting. That could be fun. And also, it's, number one, it's Oscar season. Uh, Number two, Get Out is nominated this year. And number three, kind of bringing all that around full circle, to further break all this down like a fraction, is the fact that this is an Academy Award-winning movie, and it's one wherein people question whether or not 
it really it really deserved the one award the one award that it got. Uh, which, of course, we're talking about Denzel Washington winning for Best Actor. And I, when it comes to that, I've, I've heard some people, a lot of people, say he won that year because oh, it was an apology because he'd been passed over so many years for so many other roles and also for the fact that a black actor had or had had never won the best actor oscar and what what also kind of brought to mind was a conversation that i had with a friend of mine i'll i'll leave them nameless because it's someone who's appeared on the show before who made what i thought was the out of left field truly baseless claim that Get Out was only nominated this year for an Academy Award because race relations in America are at their most their most tenuous point in years, and it happened and it happened to be a movie that took an interesting take on uh, on the black experience, um, which I went. But no, <laughs> it was also a really outstanding movie. Like, like, where do you get this? And so, when you combine all those, it, it comes down to well, I got to pick an, I got to pick an episode. This looks interesting, and it's an excuse to do what I've been meaning to do for years, and that's sit down and give it a good rewatch. So, that about sums it up. All right. Um, well, you, you you did pick a good one in terms of let's see if Mark can slay one of his babies. And I'll tell you, <laughs> this is probably the hardest show we've done in a while in in the sense that this has been the most difficult for me. Like The Empire Strikes Back was easier for me to pull Coles in because I, I truly be- I truly believe in what I was saying. Um, and, you know, in as far as what problems the movie had. And I don't want to rehash that argument all over again to go back and listen to the podcast. But like th- this is one where I remember watching it the first time and love it. And you're right. I absolutely love this movie. I thought it was great. You can count me in as one of those people who thought uh, they fucked up and didn't give Denzel Washington the Oscar he should have gotten for, uh, for Malcolm X. And was like, well, here's your Lifetime Achievement Award, um, a.k.a. your Oscar for Best Actor for Training Day. <laughs> I, I listen. I, I love this movie, and I think my entire argument is going to revolve around this one point of probably didn't deserve an Oscar, though. Um, which you know is what does that mean exactly? And, and we'll get to it when we get to that part of the show. But um, I, you know, as, as you were saying, just some uh, some notes here, and then we'll get to your notes. Uh, yes, it did come out. In 2001, it was released worldwide, um, or at least in the United States, on October 5th of 2001. It actually debuted at the Venice Film Festival on September 2nd, 2001. Uh, on a budget of $45 million, it made $104.5 million. And yes, this, you know, it's, it, the biggest note on this movie was that Denzel Washington won uh, for Best Actor uh, at the Oscars that year for this. Uh, so go ahead and 
give us some brief notes on the production or however it is you want to handle this, and then we'll get to the plot, and we'll uh, we'll start the prosecution of, of a truly, you know, it, it, you mentioned the word timely, and that also goes to one of the arguments I want to make, but in terms of at least approaching the subject of corruption in police, uh, in the institution of policing, yeah, I mean, this, I, this is a fairly relevant movie. Fairly. Minimally relevant. Somewhat relevant. It's, it's in the ballpark of relevancy. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I'm going to take a bit of a different route this time and actually save... Uh, most of the production notes that I have in part because they're pretty relevant to my case and I want to use them in my defense remarks. So what I will just run down briefly is it's, they're almost unanimous favorable reviews. Well, okay, unanimous is perhaps putting it a bit strongly. 72% freshness rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on 155 reviews Rating average, 6.5 out of 10. The, the very general rundown being that it's Denzel Washington's finest hour, but it has a somewhat un, unsatisfying ending to it. 70 out of 100 on Metacritic based on 35 critics. Roger Ebert gave it 3 out of 4 stars with tons of praise for the casting and the film's energy, which is indeed valid. Um, uh, Ebert, Ebert took umbrage at a few plot holes and he and suggested that the plausibility and logic of the very, fi- the very final few strides of the movie, about the last 15 minutes or so, are probably going to have, would probably leave a lot of people walking out of the theater about as skeptical as he did. About as skeptically. Skeptical? Skeptically? One or the other. As you pointed out, it was it was certainly financially successful. Uh, budget of forty five million, made hundred and four point five million. But what what never gets much attention is the fact that indeed we almost did not get Denzel in this role. At one point, when Davis Guggenheim and not Antoine Fuqua was set to direct, um, the part of Alonzo Harris, had to, had to check his last name for a second, uh, Samuel L. Jackson was on tap to play Alonzo Harris. And when Antoine came on board, the role was instead confirmed to go to Washington. But at another point even before that, the producers first offered it to Gary Sinise and Tom Sizemore. Both of them turned it down. They tried to bring Bruce Willis on on board, but later changed course and decided, eh, nah, let's not. And really, other than stuff that I'll bring up in the course of my case, that's, well, no, correction, uh, one more thing. I want to run down just so that everybody else, maybe even Mark and I, can run down just exactly who Denzel beat out that year. For best actor, I'll look it up. I neglected to look this. 
Uh, I, I already did. I've got it right in front of me. Okay. Um, opposing Denzel that year in the category, and this was back when it only had a total of five nominations. You had Tom Wilkinson for In the Bedroom, Sean Penn for I Am Sam. Oh, man, that somehow got nominated. One minute you're nominated for an Academy Award, the next you're a joke button Tropic Thunder. <laughs> we have we have Russell Crowe for A Beautiful Mind. And probably the next guy that I think any year now is going to get his apology Oscar, we have Will Smith for Ali. So now, now he, here's a fair question. I, I think I've never seen In the Bedroom, so I don't know. Maybe Tom Wilkinson actually delivered an utter tour de force and should have by all rights won that year. I have seen I Am Sam, A Beautiful Mind, and Ali. Let's just, let's just shuttle Sean Penn out the door right now. <laughs> so you, you personally – since we've, I'm going to assume we've both seen Ali, Training Day, and A Beautiful Mind. Given that choice to make all over again, if you were an Academy voter, would you still have checked the box for Denzel Washington, or would you go, no, Crow was a little, Crow was a little more artful as John Nash, or? Uh, or Mah- a young Muhammad Ali was the role Will Smith was born to play. Would you do it the same way? Will Smith all the way. You'd go with Will? Yep, you know, absolutely. Up until I realized that, and don't get me wrong, I like The Beautiful Mind, but even as mine not being the biggest Will Smith fan in the world... I could see how that must have been a tough, 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 tough choice for the Academy to make. And I think that, and I think that if both of those, if, if their movies were to somehow be released out of order and Ali were to come out, Ali and Training Day were to both come out this year, but without reordering any of their other movies, I think the choice would probably be even tougher. Mark, you there? Yeah, no, I was. I wasn't sure if you were done or not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right. trying very hard not to cut you off, man. Give me a break. <laughs> um, all right, let's do plot. So uh, again, I don't want to read this word for word off the wiki. It, it goes like this: Ethan Hawke is essentially auditioning for the narcotics unit under Detective Alonzo Harris, as played by Denzel Washington, as we've mentioned numerous times. Um, he gives him a hard time, like right from the start. Uh, along the way, Alonzo pressures him into smoking pot, which turns out to be CP. Um, uh, Ethan Hawke's character, Jake, uh, in the midst of being high on PCP, still manages to see a young girl being um, uh, assaulted and possibly uh, raped in an alleyway. He goes and beats up the two uh, assaulters. 
and saves the girl. This this is, becomes important later on. Um, Alonzo uh, takes Jake through a series of interactions, one of which is they harass a, a crack dealer named Blue, who's played by Snoop Dogg. Um, they, uh, they get him to inform on somebody. Uh, they go to check out the house that the, that was informed on, and instead of actually getting any kind of evidence, Alonzo takes the opportunity to steal forty thousand um, dollars. They then go visit, uh, as he calls them, the three wise men. Uh, so they get an, an arrest warrant for the um, Scott Glenn character, who is a ex-cop turned drug dealer. Uh, they go in there, they shoot him, they steal his money, and then when Jake says, hey, 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 what are we doing here? This is not cop work, this is armed robbery. <laughs> Denzel says, who's going to believe you? You smoked PCP today. And it will all say you shot him. Still there. Uh, that being said, they uh, they move on from there. Uh, Alonzo essentially tricks Jake into going into the home of would-be assassins, who then go to would-be assassinate him. Um, however, they find the ID of the girl he saved earlier. Turns out it turns out it's one of the assassin's cousins. So they let him go, uh, you know, kind of with a, Hey, you know, just business. Sorry. Um, Jake takes the bus back, uh, finds during all this, he learned that the whole reason all of this was happening today and why he was set up the way he was, was so that Alonzo could steal, um, put together a uh, an assemblage of cash, about a million dollars, to pay off Russians that he had pissed off by shooting one of them in Las Vegas. So anywho, so Jake takes the bus into the heart of one of the uh, blood-run areas, finds Alonzo, tells him he's taken the money, that's his evidence, and you know he's he's gonna he's gonna go after Alonzo the legal way. Alonzo, of course, takes umbrage with this, tries to shoot him with a shotgun. Uh, a game of cat and mouse ensues, which ends in the street where you know Alonzo attempts to get the Bloods to shoot Jake, and they all turn on Alonzo essentially um, passively. They basically tell him, "You want to shoot the guy? Do it yourself." Uh, he, Alonzo takes a shot in the ass. <laughs> Jake, Jake takes off with the money. Uh, Alonzo tries to leave town. Is shot to death on the way to the airport. Uh, and the last thing we see is Jake pulling into his driveway with the money, and the movie ends. All right. It's, it's not obviously it's a great movie. It's very entertaining. It's very well acted. It's not best actor Oscar acted. That's a problem. Um, again, I am one of these people who believes this was a Lifetime Achievement Award, not a Best Actor Oscar. And I'll just address that point right off the bat. Denzel plays a very fun, very animated, very lively, very colorful character. He's also screaming a lot of his lines throughout this movie. It's a, it's a lot of... It's the kind of part that I think a lot of actors really long for, one where they can get deep and gritty and they can kind of show off a lot of their chops. Um, but they're not exactly in Shakespeare here. You know, the, the, he's not digging into, into the depths of insanity. And he's playing a sociopath, 
But it's basically like here, essentially the, the direction had to have been, could you just show up with no pants on, throw your dick out there and swing it around, you know, it, it, during each scene, just Denzel, if you could just swing your dick, that's the kind of acting it was. It was dick swinging acting, which is fun to watch. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I enjoyed every bit of the dick swinging that was going on in this movie. <laughs> it swung you are, from side you're, you're the Gene Siskel of dick swinging. <laughs> it, it just it swung in a circle. It went, it went counterclockwise. It went left to right, right to left. It was like a windshield wiper. It was amazing to please, watch. Please, please Mark, in, 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 would, the, <laughs> would the prosecution please enlighten us as to the finer point of <laughs> penis helicoptering? I will I will bring in a surprise witness later on. Just you wait. This is going to be a guy going to burst through your bedroom window swinging a dick. Not, anyway. Oh, dude, dude, that's a problem. I'm in a basement. Uh, well, damn it. I, guess. I, don't, know who, I, don't, I don't know who... I don't know who's I don't know whose address you've memorized that you've been swinging your wang around in front of a window. Damn gave that dude, the... buddy, it's not mine. Damn it, I gave him the wrong house. Anywho, that lady's going to be real surprised later on. Anyway, let's get back to this. Um, so, as much fun as it is to watch a, as as it is to watch how animated he is in this movie. I wouldn't exactly call it, you know, the finer points of performing, you know, in a in a dramatic uh, play, as it were. So there's that. Um, I have to I have to now back out of the alley I've just driven in of dick swinging. Um, here, here's probably the biggest problem with this movie, if if I, if I may. And the and the Oscar for best cock swinging goes to. <laughs> Oh, that he wins miles he, the, my, my, by a country mile. Denzel Washington um, for glory hole. <laughs> Anywho, um, here, here's, the pro- here's the biggest problem with Training Day. Other than some of the convoluted uh, parts of this movie, the plot holes, as, as we referenced earlier, just the silliness of it all. I, I don't take issue with it because it is a fictional movie. However, it does seek to speak to a particular topic. It just speaks to it badly. This is not the story of a corrupted official taking shortcuts because the ends justify the means, which is a, which is a societal, which is a structural, which is a cultural problem that we've had for decades in law enforcement. That's not to say it's 100% bad, but it ain't 100% good either, okay? And it, this is not the platform to debate that. I'm, I, I think it, we would be hard-pressed to disagree that, they, that from here to there, there are some problems in precincts across the country and have been for quite some time. I, I don't think I'm saying anything crazy by saying that. Um, this movie again, presents you with this character who isn't really driven by any of that, at least not on the day that we see him in this movie, maybe the day before. And if he had lived, maybe it was the day after we would have seen a guy in the midst of trying to show a rookie how to do the job, show him, hey, listen, 
it's it's an ugly world out there, and you have to become an ugly monster to deal with it. And he does say that, except that none of what he's doing is in the service of that. Everything Alonzo does in this movie is in the service of paying off the Russians. So he can deliver all of these soliloquies about how they build jails because of him. You know, and Jake is right to say, are we going to do any kind of investigating today? Because from soup to nuts, everything that was done was done to set Jake up for a murder that was going to take place later so that Denzel uh, Alonzo could get the money from Scott Glenn. That doesn't speak to police corruption. It does, I mean... In, in a minor sort of reaching, grasping at straws way, it's like, oh, look, there are corrupt police. Here is a corrupt, here is a corrupt policeman. Okay. But that's not the story you're telling. You're telling the story of a man with a gun to his head using all the tricks that he knows from being a corrupt policeman to, you know, to, to pay off Russian mobsters. That's essentially my biggest problem with this movie. And I want to... I, I wish I had had time to revisit the footage of this because I used to have this on DVD. And in the, on the DVD, there's the alternate ending where it turns out Jake was actually, I think, like internal affairs and he was investigating Alonzo for all of his corruption. And that's why he was there. That, that, you know, that he was a rookie trying to get on the narc squad was a cover for the fact that they knew this guy was a corrupt cheat and Jake was trying to bring him down. Um. To me, and I don't know why that ending was cut, but it was, and I think the movie suffers because of it. Because at least then, you're drawing attention to the fact that, you know, corrupt corrupt police are a bad thing, and they should take great pains to try to stop it. That I don't get any of that from Jake in this movie. Jake is kind of is sort of there to remind the audience that while it might look cool. <laughs> Well, while the ends justifying the means and sort of the the, um, the extension of that that you see in this movie through Alonzo might be cool to watch, and you might think that he, you know, that you know what, okay, he might be in the right here. You know, you have Ethan Hawke sort of there to remind people, no, this is all bad. This is all immoral. This is not what policing should stand for. Except that it's undercut in almost every scene. You know. We shouldn't take drugs as police officers. I'm going to do it anyway. We, you know, he, they, they rob and shoot a guy. I'm very much against this. And I see that you've tricked me into it. But, you know, the prosecutor, the, uh, the defense can argue, hey, it was a rock solid plot here. You know, that the, the got him, for, you know, they had to force his hand into doing things he didn't want to do. But still, the, it's not the strongest point and it's not the strongest character. Um, you're sort of there with him because almost because you feel bad that all these things are happening to him. And, you know, certainly being shot in a bathtub, being sort of the zenith of, <laughs> we kind of like you. That would be a terrible thing if that happened to you. But I'm going to rest the, the prosecution here. Training Day had an opportunity to speak intelligently to police corruption. It blew its chance, it missed the mark, and it just told you a fun tale about a rogue cop 
stealing money to pay off Russians. And occasionally, Ethan Hawke reminds you these things are bad. The defense? You know, for all the prosecution's focus on the proficiency or lack thereof of genital gymnastics going on here, I have to admit, I'm jarred back to the focus of the movie by the notion that uh, I really should object to the fact that this alternate ending was not entered into evidence and I've had no chance to review it. So, sustained. (laughs) So, So, that throws my case aback just a little bit, but not entirely. Not entirely. Um, yeah, we can. I may have to file a separate motion regard, regarding your fascination with pee pee twirling. But <laughs> it, was, it was vivid, wasn't it? You really got a sense of what the point I was trying to make. <laughs> I'm now wanting to tell. I'm now wanting to tell Grandma to stay away from the windows. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. This was an interesting case for me because, as I've pointed out on a few occasions, I was raised in a combination of a law enforcement family by a father who, indeed, worked undercover narcotics in the beginning of his career here in – or not here in, I'm in Wichita right now, but in the Kansas City area – and but also in a family that on at least one side has got some vocally racist outdated tendencies to it so watching this then versus watching this now that was the difference because that's that's a dynamic that i'm much more aware of in terms of how it skewed my perception of this week's defendant. In particular, what I have to take into consideration is the fact that this movie was indeed 2001's Get Out. Except for the fact that you didn't have quite, excuse me, as quite, quite as prevalent an undercurrent of racial tensions between the black community and police as what we've seen in the past two years here in the United States. So you might very well be able to say that this was a masterful movie that came out at perhaps not the wrong time, but perhaps not exactly the ideal one. So in that sense, that's probably probably partially why it was a little bit harder for me to appreciate then than it is now. Because what we have is we have a combination in the main cast of Ethan Hawke playing the role that is his natural wheelhouse. Nervous, mealy-mouthed, out-of-his-element white boy. Alternately, you have Denzel Washington who has who has built his career, who had who had at this point staked a strong reputation as a leading man on not playing 
to Hollywood's most unfortunate stock mainstream stereotypes of black characters. Uh, we're t- we're talking to the to to the Michael Bay to the Michael Bay and Transformers degree of this is how. This is how I genuinely believe every adult black male actually speaks. Up to this point, he was known for movies like Philadelphia, like Glory, like Malcolm X. You know, he was, he was, how can I put this? In terms of roles that he chose, he was a bit more Morgan Freeman than Samuel L. Jackson. And Samuel's a fine actor in his own right, but his roles have kind of, have kind of played, into, played into the type a little bit on more than one occasion. Um, or you know what? An even better one than Samuel L. Jackson. I feel bad even, even bringing him up as the example of the antithesis. A little more Morgan Freeman than Chris Tucker, I think might be the better way to put it. And you put those two, and you put those two together, and you pair it with a story about a young white domesticated patrolman who is wading into uncharted waters into hostile territory in a world that he, in a world that he doesn't understand. But that, that's really up. That's that's really the crux of it, though, isn't it? Is he doesn't really understand anything that's going that's going on around him, and in part, that's what makes the scenes in which, at gunpoint, he's talked into smoking the PCP-laced weed and drinking a, and drinking a beer while they're while they're riding around to help bring himself down a little bit and get himself back to center. That's what makes those so effective is the fact that he's a combination of reluctant because he recognizes that something isn't right here, that he isn't right here, that he's a stranger in a strange land, but also that he's being swayed by a significant career opportunity. To, to elevate himself, to do something bigger, to feel like he's putting his idealism to more of a direct use. And that's why at the, end of, at the end of the movie, what I genuinely believe sways it in the other direction is that moment when, yeah, he's about to be executed in a bathtub by a bunch of gang members. And then by pure happenstance, one of them is rifling through his pockets, happens to find the leader's 14-year-old, 14-year-old cousin's wallet and, said, and says, hey, isn't that your cousin? Hey, why do you have this? No, I'm serious. I'm telling you the truth. She was about to be, she was about to be raped. I beat the two guys down. Hey, yo, is this what happened? Yeah, that's pretty much. Hey, what happened? Oh, well, this, 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 and this. Okay, we'll talk about this later. He sees that something that he did out of an instinctive reaction to do good actually had an impact on somebody. It had an immediate impact on, impact on someone because 
even though this guy, uh, murderer, drug slinger, what have, what have you, yeah, he's still got family. He's still got some, got someone that he loves, and he threw himself without thinking into protecting her. Practically tossed himself out of what, uh, practically he almost just about did a tuck and roll out of a moving car to go to go break up that attempted rape. Got his ass handed to him in the process a little bit too. And even this guy respected that. And then you've got the fact that even the people in Alonzo's own neighborhood recognize that he is a that he is a bad dude. The, the impression that I got, and again, maybe this is maybe this is mistaken. Maybe I'm maybe I'm putting on the Matt Pat mask and going a little too far down film theory road here. But the impression that I got were the people in Alonzo's neighborhood. Not everything they may, have been, they may have been doing may have been exactly legal, but they weren't necessarily going out of their way to hurt anybody. They, they, they weren't – if they did, it was something they did because somebody wandered into their turf and they, and they didn't want them there or because – well, that's about it. Yeah, because – either because they, they wandered into their turf and they wanted there, they were collateral damage. Whereas Alonzo will go out of his way, will reach to try to bring people down just so that he can step on them a little more easily. And also, you get the impression that they've been stepped on by him. So they kind of go, man, we, we know what you are and we don't like you being here, but considering that you are apparently the enemy of our enemy, we're going to allow it. And we're not, going to, and we're not necessarily going to, help, going to help you, but we're not going to get in your way either. So when you have all that and you really break, up, and you really break all that down, that is – that's what I believe the story keeps coming back to as much as to the more topical element of corruption among the police, which, to be perfectly honest, was handled remarkably effectively. And what you have to remember is Mark and I are both of an age that we're old enough to remember the Rodney King verdict. We we remember entirely too vividly Los Angeles effectively exploding into flames when those officers were what, what was it a Mark re, remind me um, was it a was it a mistrial or were they actually found not guilty I believe they were found not guilty um, I'm gonna that, that's what I that's what I thought my gut my gut was they were found not guilty but then I had a thought uh, was it, were they not guilty or was it a mistrial? Either way, the first time around they got off. And Los Angeles just became a towering inferno of frankly of frankly understand frankly understandable outrage and anger. And it and it spilled over brutally. And we're also old enough 
to be able to recall all the theories that have surrounded the murders of Tupac and Notorious B.I.G. One of the bigger ones being that they were that Biggie's murder in particular was the product of corruption within the LAPD. That's that's been a long been a long standing theory. So, for the most part, and I say for the most part because the bit about oh I angered some Russians now I owe them a million dollars they're going to kill me so I'm going going to stage this huge elaborate heist. That part is reasonably plausible, and I have to commend the production because whereas you could have put out a casting call for professional extras, Fuqua was striving for for the utmost authenticity. He shot as much of Training Day as possible on location in a number of Los Angeles's most infamously gang-ruled neighborhoods. Uh, he that there's they before this movie no other LA street gang had ever granted permission to shoot in the Imperial Court's housing project, <laughs> or rather, I mean they're it's not like they're not an official body, but let's just say no other had no other film crew had been allowed to walk into that walk into that territory and assured they would leave unscathed. Um, they filmed in Baldwin Village and Village and Hoover Block. They shot on Palmwood on Palmwood Drive with real members of the Black Peastones Bloods on the rooftops. Um, uh, I want to make sure you have the name right here. I can't read my own hand, handwriting. Um, they brought on Klee Shaheed Sloan as a gang technical advisor, and he was able to wrangle up real-life members of the P.J. Watts Crips, the Roland 60 Crips, and the B.P. Stones to appear as, ex- appear as extras. And Fuqua claims that the, the crew and actors were all welcomed warmly and were accommodated were accommodate pretty much the whole way. And what he couldn't shoot on location, he recreated as authentically as possible with sets. But at the same time, they also brought on Michael Patterson and Paul, and Paul Zada as police technical advisors. Um, Ethan Hawke and Denzel Washington both met and extensively interviewed undercover op, police officers, local drug dealers, and gang members to get deeper beneath the skin of their roles. And it shows. One thing about this movie that a lot of people won't point out is if I had to describe it in one word, I would say it's tight. Both when you're talking about the time frame and the scope. You're talking about less than 24 hours. About, in fact, we're talking more like probably about oh, 12 to 15 hours or so. It, it rarely wavers very far with very many prolonged sidetracks from both from the story of Alonzo of um, Alonzo taking uh, briefly 
blanking on his name. Hoyt, uh, taking uh, Alonzo taking Jake under his wing. And in terms of the cinematography, you don't really see a whole lot of wide shots. And everything is, is kept in the shots is kept very, kept very tight, very close. And everything is, and that contributes to maintaining the tension throughout the, the, the entire movie. It really never, ever lets up, but it never lets you feel exhausted either. It's, it's a story told really efficiently over the course of, over the course of two hours. It, it almost doesn't feel like a two-hour movie at times because everything is advancing so quickly, which is, which is important because every event in the story escalates everything so, so rapidly. There are, and there are plenty of, there are plenty of cliches throughout the movie, and they may be there to set up plot convenience. Uh, the, the whole notion that Alonzo, as he put it, has been planning this heist all week when you really think about it, we talked before about plans in movies that just, they had better go off without so much as a single flinching hitch or everything come, comes crumbling down around it. Man, some of this shit was elaborate and was absolutely betting big that he was going to go to the right, go to the, the proper side of the flowchart that Alonzo wanted. Otherwise, none of this shit would, would, have possi- would have possibly worked. And the, the cliches are there. Hell, the main characters themselves are, are certainly cliches to some, to some extent. I mean, Jake far more so than Alonzo, I think. But somehow they, somehow they work. And... That dedication to authenticity never allows Training Day to devolve into into caricature. You know, you and you never get the sense that they've kind of gone for when it when it comes to Alonzo's neighborhood. Maybe, possibly, all of a sudden, being okay with okay with police now that they now that they've seen seen the light and really thinking this this little white boy is white boy is one of them. No. We we are not getting the Rocky Four ending here. We we are not getting the the one guy with a gun held to Alonzo's head all of a sudden all of a sudden telling telling Jake, you know some white boy? If you can change and I can change Maybe we can all change. No, that, that's not happening. There's no such promise there. They just tell him, walk away, and you don't have to be a part of what's about to happen next. That's it. They just let him live. He, he has not been granted a golden hood pass. Which that part, when you when you think about it, it's, yeah, that, that's believable. That, that's reasonable. And that's, why, that's, again, partially why it doesn't feel entirely implausible. And yeah, I'll even close on a bit of marketing genius that I absolutely loved, and that's the, infam- the, infam- the infamous K 
King Kong ain't got nothing on me line that was worked into every single bit of TV advertising for this. What I love about that is the fact that in the movie, when you finally hear it and you recognize that line and everything it stands for, you also realize the context that it's one of the very that it's one of the very last things we hear him say before before some before you know he's he's brought down in a shower of gunfire by the rush by the Russians when he's ambushed on on the highway presumably to either beat a hasty path out of town or go deliver their money and. All in all, what you're left with is a feeling that Jake has gotten a look at, yeah, the, the greasier wheels that keep the justice system turning and what it takes at a, certain le- at a certain level to make that happen. And you get the sense that it's caused him to examine just how badly he wants to be a part of that and whether his conscience will allow him to be a part of it because that that's I really believe that's why at the end after he's sort of had his actions throughout the day brought into focus by the incident with with the Latino gang who's going to kill him that's why he's determined initially to bring Alonzo in the right way is because he's been shown that they're at that their actions in the best of times can matter even to the people who are supposed to be the bad guys. So on that note, I'm just going to say the defense rests. Okay. My only counterpoint to all of that, and I'm going to apologize uh, if I sound dramatically differently or badly. Blog Talk Radio has once again taken a shit. And for some odd reason, my direct connection, it's, still on but I couldn't but I was like disconnected but not disconnected I don't really know what happened but I'm dialing in on a guest line now through my cell phone so I'm going to make this brief oh okay um I I object to the notion that uh that that last bit of what the defense brought up regarding you know Jake uh for, for this reason and this reason only, I don't think Jake's written well enough to – I think there's, there's a lot of inference on the defense, defense's part. I think there's a lot of wishing on the creative team's part of this movie that the, that the audience gets to where uh, they want them to go to without actually supplying sufficient evidence that that's the case. In the, in the alternate ending that I brought up before, and I realize if you haven't watched it, then it's kind of an unfair point, but let's but, – Go with me on this one for just a second. If you have, on the one hand, somebody who it's implied that he's uh, got ideals to be a detective, you know, he's trying to make rank and move up in the police force, it still doesn't really rationalize the early decisions that he makes. Now, once once the guy's shot and they steal his money and they're like, well, if you if you turn on us, we're going to say, you know, you're, you're going to get tested for, for drugs, you're going to fail, and we're going to say you shot the guy and you'll go, to, you'll go to prison for murder. Okay, at that point, he's stuck. I get it. 
no argument there. But everything up leading, everything leading to that point, I don't care how ambitious he is. He, I, I still think he's not written well enough to explain why he makes such bad decisions leading up to that point. If he's uh, if he's narking on Alonzo, if he's an if he's investigating him, and he's got to do whatever it takes to stay in that car, then it makes more sense. And he's not necessarily a badly written character. Um, that's that's my only last bit on this is that there was so much focus on developing this this dick helicoptering uh, sociopath cop that the phrase he he's acting at Ethan Hawke comes to mind, and I got that from one of the uh, one of the rotten reviews from uh, Rotten Tomatoes, but I couldn't agree more. You know, Denzel Washington sucks all the air out of every scene. And, you know, he's fun to watch. And I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. This is certainly the Denzel Washington show, which is fine. But that didn't leave a whole lot left for Ethan Hawke. And then Ethan Hawke's character is not all that interesting to begin with, nor nor does the way that he is written make any sense for the decisions that he makes under the guise that he's just an ambitious police officer. Makes a little bit more sense the other way around, where, you know, where he's the IED guy. But um, with that said, and, you know, in the current technical difficulties, I'm going to let it rest there. Uh, you know, look, I'm just, and this is now stepping out of the role as prosecutor. Okay, I still love this movie. I, I, I watched it again, and it's as entertaining now as it was when I watched it in 2001. And I, I really, I'll go back to what I said to, at the beginning of the podcast, I really did struggle with what I was going to say tonight. Like, been the hardest show we've done yet for me in terms of mm. what's my angle. And, and you know, I made I, such a hue and cry out of, well, it doesn't really speak to police corruption as much as it does this shitty guy on a mission to unearth himself and the shit he's piled on himself. But I don't care either. <laughs> I didn't watch Training Day. Like, I didn't watch Training Day in the hopes it would speak to the experience of the corrupt police officer and why we need to do something about it. I watched this because I wanted to see Denzel swing his dick and hit Ethan Hawke in the face with it. That's what I wanted, and I got it. Um, <laughs> hey, if you heard the new on trial, yeah, there's a lot of talk about swinging dicks in it. Really? What did they review? Training Day. You're kidding me. <laughs> 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 so with that said, go ahead and plug your stuff there, Sean. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you to everybody who listens live, downloads, passes word along to friends every two weeks. We appreciate it immensely. You are obviously the reason why we do what we do. We seek to inform, entertain you, and failing that, entertain ourselves. <laughs> You can follow me on Twitter at Comer Codex for news and updates on all of my future projects, both on the Rod Lichen Broadcasting Network and elsewhere. Speaking of elsewhere, I have a review of the PlayStation 4 release of Thomas Brush's Pinstripe coming up on W2Mnet.com within the next few days. So keep an eye out there and follow me on Twitter because I'm going to tweet the link to it when it goes live. And 
Also, you can catch my weekly wrestling listicle uh, eight-match tag over on chairshot.com. I pick a theme and come up with the eight best matches from the deep recesses of the WWE Network archives to both entertain longtime fans and introduce new ones to the sport of kings. Keep an eye out on comercodex.wordpress.com. I've got a few blogs coming that way within the next couple of days, topical and kind of personal ones that I've been working on for the last few days. My streaming channel, twitch.tv slash comercodex, is going on a momentary hiatus because I am going to be temporarily moving sometime in the fairly near future, and I've just got too much to do to have time. But when it comes back, I'll have some more things in mind there. I, I will still be on every Saturday night with Saturday Night Smite, which has also become Saturday Night Paladins, in which myself and my good friend and fellow Rodelich and Broadcast Network guest, uh, Cole Marentet, gang up on some multiplayer PS4 action. If we're playing Smite, we are smacking gods of various and sundry pantheons around. If we're playing Paladins, then we are digging into... Um, a hero shooter Overwatch competitor on the same side. But other than that, that's about the gist of it. Oh, if you're, if you're looking for somebody to squat up with on Paladins, uh, PlayStation Network, Sean C. Comer, S-E-A-N-C-C-O-M-E-R. Uh, looking for about two or three more people. But otherwise, I'm Sean. You're not. Never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. Right. Next week is the uh, illustrious return of Damn New Hollywood. We'll be looking at the latest Marvel drop, uh, Black Panther. It's already set to uh, break all kinds of records and probably be one of Marvel's biggest successes outside of the Avengers movies. The following week, Ronnie Adams of the Screaming Boy podcast um, and I will be reviewing season two of Black Sails. And uh, just a quick look into the future. We'll be back on Damn You Hollywood. We'll be back on Damn You Hollywood and on trial the week of March 5th through the uh, 9th. We got the new Death Wish with Bruce Willis, which we'll review on the 6th. And then we'll be doing the old Death Wish, the original Death Wish, on On Trial on the 8th. Um, two weeks later is Tomb Raider week. Damn You Hollywood will be reviewing the new Tomb Raider reboot. And we'll be putting the old uh, Lara Croft Tomb Raider Cradle of Life, which is the second of the two movies uh, of the Tomb Raiders, of the former Tomb Raider series on trial. So that's what we got next. We've got the old Death Wish and the second uh, Tomb Raider movie that we'll be putting on trial in the month of March. So be sure to check those out. So for Sean, you're not. I am your mandate reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified. We thank you. Uh, once again, all rise. Court is in recess. Be well, be safe, and behave.